Uh, jumping right in. Three rhetorical appeals. Ethos, pathos, logos. Ethos is the credibility, what the speaker brings to the, to the table. Um, pathos is the emotion, the uh, type of response you're trying to elicit from your audience. Usually emotional. A lot of people have get a bad rap when it comes to pathos. I used to teach uh, first year rhetoric and composition. And when I taught these appeals and we got to pathos, I asked them, what do you think of when you think of pathos? Anybody want to guess what example came to mind? Manipulation. Well, yes. Televangelist. <laughs> yes. There was one specific commercial. Oh. The arms of the angels with the sad puppies, right? Uh, so it gets a bit of a, a bad rap, um, but I'm hoping that by the end of today you'll see that it's not always like that. Uh, logos is the one kind of we usually think of, which is the logical arguments we're presenting, the message itself. So starting with, no grace. Uh, starting with ethos, let me explain why you should listen to me, what my credibility is, what my ethos is. My name is Grace Hall. Uh, I have been educated at Pepperdine, Abilene Christian University, and Georgia State. I have a bachelor's and a master's in English literature, uh, and I did a year of PhD coursework in rhetoric and composition at Georgia State before I decided, no thank you, I do not want to be a full-time faculty member, eject please. Um, I am now the manager of strategic projects for the Seaver Dean's office, so what I like to call academia adjacent. Uh, and I was almost literally born in the Churches of Christ. That is a photo of me at five days old on my very first Sunday uh, in my father's arms as he's preaching immediately right off the bat being used as a sermon illustration. <laughs> Happened for the rest of my life, and now that he's retired, my big sister is doing it, so that's fine. Um, and I discovered, actually, during one of the projects I was working on for the dean, uh, that I can trace my family roots in the Churches of Christ back to the 1850s on both sides. And it gets a little weird, like one of my dad's relatives baptized, I think my mom's uncle, and it wasn't like they were in the same town. One was in Texas, one was in Canada. So it's a bit of a stretch, but that's the Churches of Christ for you. Um, let me tell you about my dad. I am going to be talking about my dad's sermon today. I will freely admit right off the bat that I am super biased. But I think my dad is a brilliant preacher. He's my favorite preacher ever. Um, he was educated at Freed Hardeman and ACU. He has a BA in Bible and a Master's of Divinity. Uh, he taught or he ministered at the Whitney Avenue Church of Christ, Johnson Street Church of Christ, Woodland Hills Church of Christ, Campbell Church of Christ. He is now happily retired in the country and he is super adorable. That's him and my mom. Look at how cute they are. Uh, speaking of my mom, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my mom. I'm going to be talking a lot about my dad today and about his sermon. And one of the things I'm going to be praising my father for is the vulnerability and the difficult, humble reflection 
that he both engaged and shared through this sermon. That would not have been possible without my mom. So I can't mention my dad's good works without saying there was someone putting in a lot of effort behind the scenes. Uh, she got a BA in social work. I like to say that she, she didn't go into social work, but she did have one 50-year caseload, which was just my dad. Uh, she also engaged in ministry at the Whitney Avenue Church of Christ, Johnson Street Church of Christ, Woodland Hills Church of Christ, and the Campbell Church of Christ. She is also happily retired in the country. Uh, she's also super adorable, and she's Canadian. So that's my parents. They're awesome. Let's go back to these rhetorical appeals. Um, pathos, uh, as I said, uh, is really connected to the audience. And the audience, I would argue, is the most important consideration in crafting a persuasive message. Now, I'll, I'll say right now, uh, I, have <laughs> I have serious theological issues with calling a congregation an audience in the normal course of church practices, but because this is a particular rhetorical term and this is a particular rhetorical analysis, I will be using that term at least in part so that I don't get tripped up halfway through and call it a congra audience or something. Um, speaker. A little, little bit more background about the speaker, my father. At that point, he had been preaching at Campbell Church of Christ, which is where this sermon took place, for 20 years. So he had an established rapport and extensive credibility, both as a scholar and a minister deeply dedicated to the well-being of the church, both local and universal. That makes a huge difference in building that ethos. He had two decades of goodwill built up that he could borrow from as he engaged this difficult, controversial topic. Preachers who are guest preaching or newer uh, or guest speaking have to pay particular attention to cultivating goodwill early on in order to get your audience to trust you. Message is not something we're going to spend a lot of time on today. I am a huge fan of this sermon. I, it's one of my favorites I've ever heard. Um, but the point of this presentation today is not to rehash his argument, but to talk about the way in which he makes his argument. So Logos is actually going to get uh, the, the lesser attention today. So we're going to start with audience, which incidentally is where my dad's sermon starts. He starts in the very second sentence by explaining the audience to the audience. This morning, I want to explain to some of us why this topic has been such a big issue in our church. And I suppose that's primarily for the roughly half of you who weren't nurtured in the Church of Christ. Then I want to analyze the evolution of our history and why this change is occurring in our fellowship not just in our church, and that's in some ways primarily for those whose roots are in the Church of Christ. So he makes sure that his audience knows who their fellow listeners are. And this is really important because I would bet that most of the hardcore dyed-in-the-wool CFCers who were in that audience that morning 
would have been really surprised to hear that about half the congregation was not raised in the Church of Christ. And the other half who were not raised in the Church of Christ would probably be really, really surprised to know that this at one time was such a major salvation issue that it was considered a sin and churches split over it. So he's helping the audience understand themselves and help kind of build in some patience for those arguments they will almost certainly hear that are not for them. They're for the person sitting next to them. Uh, later on in the sermon, he also does an interesting piece of audience-based persuasion through an argument he does not make, actually, which is uh, which is basically that the simple back-to-basics reading of scripture at the core of the Restoration Movement is in itself mediated and interpreted. He takes this as a given. He does not make this argument. He just puts it out there and acknowledges it as fact. And this effectively sidesteps the argument that some particularly legalistic sea of seers would make that scripture is self-evident. Scripture is poetry and history and personal correspondence between very specific writers and very specific audiences. There is, for some, a belief that the Church of Christ tradition effectively stripped this all away, but he makes it clear that our tradition itself was born in a unique historical and cultural context, which influenced the way Thomas Campbell viewed scripture and therefore how we view scripture today. There may be similar arguments that you need to kind of glance off of on your way to your main argument, or it may be this very one. This is a big deal for the churches of Christ. And I know I'm, I'm probably gonna say this about like five times today, but I have the, the audio and the transcript available from this sermon. It's fantastic, especially if you are looking for some uh, background and some explanation of the context in which the restoration movement was born. Um, it's what my dad calls the interpretive air that was present at the time of the birth of the Churches of Christ. As he puts it, the interpretive air that you breathe at the time seems to be just pure air, but it's always culturally conditioned. So one, the big example he talks about, the, the, the kind of crux of his argument is that Campbell looked at the scriptures as a constitution. And that was important to him because the United States Constitution was ratified only 20 years earlier. It's very specific to the historical political context in which Thomas Campbell found himself. So time and time again, he references this mediation without explicitly making the argument. How do you interpret the Bible? How do you understand the text, the template that Campbell chose to read it as, or the template that Campbell chose was to read it as a constitution. Why did he choose that metaphor, import that template, see it through that lens? Choosing that template by which to understand the New Testament had consequences. This is not his argument that he's making, but he's acknowledging it as he goes past 
so that he can get additional buy-in from his listeners. He makes it clear, my father makes it clear, that this was a choice, a conscious choice by Thomas Campbell to interpret the Bible through a particular lens. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead for time and go to Logos. Uh, I would say Logos is generally not a problem in the Churches of Christ. Uh, it's rare that I attend a Church of Christ and hear my pet peeve type of sermon, which is what I call a collection of nice thoughts about God with kind of a scripture or two sprinkled in for flavor. I don't, I don't see many of those in the CFC. Uh, <laughs> we are text-based, study-driven, scripture-parsing maniacs. And this sermon is no different. There are numerous scriptures, including contextualizing New Testament verses with their Old Testament sources, as well as uh, commentary from Christian thinkers, from Campbell and his peers, all the way to my father's own peers. Now, the content of his arguments regarding instrumental music is not the point of this presentation. Uh, as I've said, it's really more on the strategy. So I'm just going to offer a few little insights here. One interesting thing my dad did was present what I'm calling an argument by proxy. He shares a story of a guest who came to Campbell and emailed him after the fact and said, I'm really upset that you have women passing communion trays. You need to stop that. That's not what's in the Bible. And he wrote back and he said, I don't see that. You know, I, I didn't know it was wrong. Can you explain? And they wrote back again and said, everything we do in worship Everything we're to do is explicitly spelled out, and we must follow that pattern rigidly. And I wrote back again, and I said, I've read the New Testament from front to back, and I can't find that passage. Would you tell me where it is? And that person never wrote back. So here, he is actually presenting an argument to his audience that allows them to see the argument from an outside perspective. It's letting them kind of remove their ego and their identity from the argument. He's not arguing with them. He's demonstrating an argument and lets them see it and think about it with a level of removal, a buffer of comfort that lets them feel that it, they're, not being, uh, they're not having the finger pointed at them, if that makes sense. Uh, he also uh, relies on a multitude of outside sources for support, including the writings of Thomas Campbell himself. It is highly effective that he was able to show that our church tradition has developed a practice that Campbell explicitly warned against, which was we made salvation issues out of textual inferences. And he pulls Campbell's own words to show that. Most importantly, I would say he holds off on logos. When you are attempting to convey a difficult message, you don't drop the hammer right out the gate. You hold off. My father's sermons, I, I went through and I color coded it. Uh, purple for pathos and blue for logos and green for ethos and pink for audience considerations. There's no blue on the first page. It doesn't start till the second because it's more important to set the stage, to develop that rapport, and to ease into it. After all, 
no one ever became a Christian because they lost a debate. Well, I'm wrong. I guess I love Jesus now. That, that's not how this works. So we wait on that. Ethos. Right off the bat, uh, he, his first direct appeal to credibility is to identify himself as someone who used to believe that instrumental music is sinful. He builds that credibility, that ethos, by saying, I was in this place before, and this has been my journey. I'm not railing against it. I don't think you're bad if you think this. I used to think this. I used to preach sermons explicitly saying that instrumental worship is wrong. So he is creating kinship between himself and the audience members who may feel uncomfortable or called out by his sermon. He also acknowledges the familial difficulties that this can create. Uh, while all the elders and ministers are in unanimous agreement with the announcement that was made, I want you to know that many of us have grandparents and parents uh, who were leaders in churches who frankly would be shocked at this announcement. He mentions his father, my grandfather, preaching sermons. By the way, my grandfather was also a Church of Christ uh, minister for his whole life, so it's kind of like, you know, third generation. Um, preached sermons claiming that instrumental music was sinful, and he borrowed that sermon when he started out and preached that himself. He's not out to get those who were taught that instrumental music is wrong. He's been where they are. Some of us will have very difficult conversations with extended family. I know what it is like to have my parents sit in this building, this room, very unhappy with their experience in their son's church. I've been there. That crosses the line a bit into pathos, but I would say that the stronger appeal here is with ethos. It's building that credibility. Uh, he also starts out by providing context and perspective for the bigness of the issue. I want to begin by telling you that the last two weeks, having nothing to do with the announcement, by the way, have been some of the most difficult weeks in 20 years of ministry here. I've had conversations with people about divorce, alcoholism, homelessness, suicide, sexual sin, unemployment, cancer, and other crises. And now this sermon is about playing the guitar while singing praise to God. I get the irony. Again, a little bit of pathos there at the end, a little bit of wry humor. But the main thing is to say, I get that we are talking about something that in the grand scheme of things, and particularly for those who were not raised in the churches of Christ, seems like a non-issue. And he essentially says, hey, you're not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong. Uh, next piece is name dropping. Nothing wrong with some name dropping. His sermon is rife with names of historical Christian thinkers, influential philosophers, and contemporary church leaders. There's an interesting kind of ethos in not explaining in depth every person he name checks. 
which also helps to keep the sermon on track. And the kinds of names he drops are important too. He mentions his old ACU professor and friend, Bill Humble, a reference that many in the audience with reservations about instrumental music would likely recognize and find comfort in. He mentions Ben Franklin, not that one, John Mark Hicks, G.C. Brewer, Thomas Hobbes, Charles Hodge, T.B. Larimore, and J.W. McGarvey. The gentlemen in the late 1800s, early 1900s really loved initial names, I found. In each case, he makes a passing reference to these men and their work, but the cumulative effect is impressive. Dude knows his stuff. And even the way he mentions scripture references en masse has the effect of building credibility. In discussing the headings of psalms that indicate they are meant for instruments, he quickly rattles off Psalms 4, 5, 6, 54, 55, 61, 67, and 76. He obviously didn't know all of those off the top of his head, but presenting that rapid fire list of references once again shows the depth of his research and his familiarity with both the topic and the scriptures in general. Now, as I said before, pathos gets a bad rap. It is the underdog of the rhetorical appeals. but pathos is not those sad puppies and the arms of the angel. That's pathos on steroids. That's, that's OD. And in effect, that's what happens when it goes too far. I don't know about you, but when I still used to watch commercials, anytime that would come on, I would immediately change the channel. It was that boomerang effect. It was too much, too intense. But pathos is not just sadness or manipulation. Well, I mean, all emotional appeals are manipulation to a certain extent, blah, 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 blah. They're not that overt kind of uh, grimy manipulation. It's humor. It's wonder. It's curiosity. It's vulnerability. It's humility. And particularly in this case, it's appeals to our common Christian character. That's an appeal to pathos. And he starts this in the beginning of his sermon and calls back to it at the end of his sermon. At the beginning of the sermon, the goal is understanding. And then to have the attitude of heart that honors our Lord and Savior in this Christian body of believers at the end of the sermon, calls back. So what's not okay, as I've already indicated, is pride by any of us. Not superiority, but rather graciousness and sensitivity and mutual respect and to remember Jesus in what was effect his dying prayer in John 17, which was a prayer for unity. He lays out the goal for the sermon, which is not actually to change anyone's mind. It's understanding and it's unity. It's keeping that family, that church family together, despite any differences we may have. He calls upon his audience's conviction as followers of Christ, that unity in Christ and the core tenets of the gospel are what are truly important. He talks about uh, something called positive law and 
encourages his audience to actually pay attention to instinct and cognitive dissonance. Uh, so positive law, which is an idea that the other Ben Franklin came up with, uh, is basically the idea that it's impossible to never err when it comes to ethical moral matters. You know, the big stuff. So God knows this. He knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we're going to boast and be envious and all those kinds of things. So God is patient with those things. God knows we can't get that right. On the other hand, it is possible to follow worship protocols perfectly. So God has no patience for errors there. And in fact, getting worship right is, quote, a more perfect test of allegiance to God. So this, again, may seem like an appeal to Logos. He's providing textual proof of a foundational historical philosophy of worship. But I would argue that the shock and extreme cognitive dissonance is the stronger appeal. How we worship is more important to God than following the example of Christ? Cool, 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 cool. That's insane. We all know, listening to this, that that is deeply wrong. And he encourages his audience to listen to that gut feeling. In speaking about how such a shift in thinking and perspective takes place, he says this. I think it begins with a recognition that something is not working. We all have those interpretive glasses through which we color and shape everything. And within our system and perspective, it all makes sense, at least on paper. But when off, what then what often happens is something shakes up a person's perspective and a journey begins. And later, but I do think it begins with nagging questions, problems with the status quo. You begin to see inconsistencies, ragged edges, leaps of logic, practical reality failures. And you begin to say, maybe we haven't gotten it just right. I know us CFCers aren't uh, particularly big on what some might call the woo-woo stuff, but an appeal to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a powerful motivator. I want to uh, introduce one more concept, which is that of kairos. And I know in biblical studies this has a different uh, specific meaning, but here we're talking about uh, injecting, it's talking about the opportune moment, injecting the right appeal in the right way at the right time. Uh, when I was color coding my dad's sermon, I noticed that there was a full page of blue. He was going through all of Thomas Campbell's writings, he was explaining them, he was going on, particularly when he was talking about Campbell's warnings against making salvation issues of inferences. So it was blue, 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 blue. And there was a little pause, a moment, and then, if only we had listened. That's that chirotic moment. That's kairos. Finding the appropriate moment to break the pattern, insert a jolt of an argument, 
and shake your audience awake. Uh, I will say, probably the biggest part of the pathos in this sermon is his radical vulnerability and humility. He speaks extensively about his own personal experience with this, his own failures to listen or to change, and admits readily that he was wrong. I just turned 23 and I still don't have it all figured out. But restoration and studying the scriptures as the Bereans are described in Acts is always an ongoing process and challenge. So again, shout out to my mom for that kind of uh, maturity and vulnerability. Good job. He's leading by example. He's humble enough to change and to admit that he was wrong. He's not asking anything of his audience that he's not doing himself. Um, My father and grandfather did not have a good relationship. They were two men with the same passion for the same ministry in the same church tradition. And at one point, we're preaching at Churches of Christ only 200 miles apart. But they couldn't talk about their ministry because of these types of issues. The gulf was too big. It was too divisive. I have no memory of attending church with my grandfather. No memory of discussing faith with him at all. That gulf was too big, and it cost them both dearly. My father reflected on his relationship with his father, as well as his future relationship with his granddaughters in a highly moving moment at the end of the sermon. And since pathos is really more than just the words on the page, I'd like you to hear his words for yourselves. Everyone say a prayer that this works. I remember a conversation with my dad when he was about 50. Uh, when he told me he had changed his mind about a very divisive, very really a significant issue, uh, one of which we had disagreed on, and he said, now I've changed my mind. And then almost apologetically he said, but that was all I was ever taught. Well, of course. That's true. That's true for all of us on any number of things. But that moment is really powerful to me because it was, a mo- it was a restoration moment. A moment when he said, I've restudied, I've rethought it through, and I've changed my conviction on this. And so I shouldn't sell him short and say he would have never changed his mind on this issue. Well, maybe he would have. But I should also look down the road to the future. Uh, Three years ago on Easter Sunday, I preached that Sunday while my first granddaughter, Sophia, was getting ready to come into the world. And she came that Sunday afternoon. Well, today my phone is on silent, but it's on vibrate because Kaylee is coming. Any day, any moment, we thought actually she was coming yesterday. Second granddaughter's on the way. And here's my point. In a few years, one or both of those girls may come to me and say something like this. Papa, I think you're wrong about that. Your generation missed something. And I may very well have to say to her, you're right. 
and restoration and pressing on the upward way to God's perfection will continue. Let's stand together and sing an old hymn that calls us to what is crucial. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Let's stand together and sing. That was Grand Funk Railroad that I also learned from my father, uh, but not part of the sermon. So that, the end of that sermon is just pathos, 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 pathos. But all of it is effective and powerful and meaningful. Let me see if I can get the slides back. Is it there? Hallelujah. Um, That there is some radical humility, especially from and at the, at the risk of offending any in the audience, an older white man in the Churches of Christ. He's saying, I might be wrong, and my infant granddaughter may be the one to correct me. That is where the appeal to pathos encounters the gospel of Christ and changes people for the better. So now we come to the so what. And actually, I can just take this out for now. Um, <clears throat> another thing my father taught me is that every sermon should have a so what, a practical take-home application. Sermons shouldn't be one of those collections of nice thoughts about God, but they also can't be an esoteric thought experiment devoid of context or meaning for the lived experience of the church. And I want to say this next part very gently because I know all too well how difficult these past few years have been for those of you in ministry. My parents are retired now, but my older sister and her husband are deeply involved in ministry at their church in Oakland, and their experience has kind of been brutal. I've seen on Twitter friends and internet friends talk about leaving ministry either short-term or permanently simply because the hate, grief, divisiveness, and added demands that have been brought on by COVID have been beyond what any person can maintain. So I want to say this gently, but I want to say this for the sake of the future of the church. If your church is still wrestling with instrumental music, you are three major issues behind. We've got to talk about misogyny. Women were granted the right to vote over a century ago. I can be president, but I can't preach the word of God to my family in Christ. Something's not right there. If you haven't already, I would really encourage you to read The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Bard. Really good. We have to deal with racism. Violent, systemic racism has been codified in the American church since its very inception. I hate it, but that's the truth. The civil rights movement began roughly 60 years ago, and the work of racial godly justice was happening long before that. 
Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness was incredibly edifying and challenging for me. There are other uh, less formal resources available. I would encourage you to look at Insta Instagram accounts run by black authors, including black underscore our story, black coffee with white friends, and particularly Cole Arthur Riley's black liturgies. Those are life-giving. We also have to deal with the idea of Christians who are part of the LGBTQ community. Stonewall happened over 50 years ago. The church has had half a century to start grappling with the reality and listening to the experience of LGBTQ plus Christians. If you don't know where to start, and that's fine, I suggest heading over to Twitter and looking at the hashtag FaithfullyLGBTQ. There's a lot of people willing to share their stories there. And I know that that topic in particular is probably gonna to be tough for a lot of people. But I gotta tell you a secret. The call is coming from inside the house. Every Sunday you attend church, you are worshiping with your fellow Christians who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. They may not be out. They may not even be out to themselves, but they are there and they are desperate to know that the love of God and the good news of Christ Jesus are meant for them too. I know this seems like a lot. My dad said in his sermon that change seldom happens quickly and it probably shouldn't happen quickly. To an extent, I agree with him, but I think one thing his generation got wrong was that they went too slow. And now this generation of clergy are having to deal with the fallout. We waited too long and now multiple things have come to a head at once, exacerbated by COVID and a political climate defined by vitriol. We have to be talking about these conversations, particularly because Maintaining the status quo is not a neutral stance. By maintaining the status quo, churches are actively siding with those for whom the status quo is comfortable and actively siding against those for whom the status quo is uncomfortable or even hurtful. I know we don't want to be divisive and we shouldn't be intentionally divisive, but we also can't afford to use that verse as an excuse to capitulate and water down the gospel. Life is short, the message of the gospel is urgent, and we don't have time to waste. I have some, uh, a slide of some resources that are available, including all of those uh, uh, resources I mentioned earlier, uh, as well as my email address. I'll pop that up on the screen in a second. Um, if you are interested, in either this presentation or my dad's presentation, I'm happy to provide either. I appreciate you all coming and I appreciate your patience with the unusual start to our morning. Thank you.